Hello, Scary Squad. I'm Annie. And I'm Elise. And we are excited to bring you our first mini-sode. A little something to tide you over until next Sunday's case. Uh, I think it's safe to say I'm a bit emotionally frazzled after researching this week's case and talking with my sister. So I'm going to hand the mic over to Annie. I completely agree. I'm frazzled too, but I'm going to carry on for our scary squad. All right, Elise, we cannot talk about true crime without mentioning DNA, of course. But since it was first used in a 1986 investigation, its capabilities have come so, so far. I want to break down for you cases that stick out to me that have been solved not just with traditional DNA, but genetic genealogy DNA testing. That is a mouthful. So are you just talking about, you know, 23andMe? Exactly. Have you ever done DNA testing? Only on my dog. So when we picked up Gracie, I did the Embark test. For those that don't know, I, I moved to Denver recently and picked up a dog on the side of the road. And she surprised me with eight puppies. So before we felt like we could adopt them out comfortably, we wanted to know what the heck these puppies were. So my puppies and my dog have gotten genetic testing. But as far as I know, I don't have any genetic reports just lying about. What did her DNA test results come back as? What breed is she? She is mostly Australian cattle dog. She has a little bit of German Shepherd in her a little bit of Rottweiler, and then the rest of her is like a, a mix of basically every working dog you can think of. She's a lot of cuddles, but high energy, that one. Have you done genetic testing? I have not. I'm not opposed to it, but I've had a lot of family members do it, so I kind of feel like that's good enough. So in order to set the stage, we have to first talk about the different types of DNA testing that investigators and law enforcement use. A few of the popular methods are, first up, we have touch DNA. So think about lifting a DNA sample off an item after someone has touched it. Pretty straightforward. We also have STR mix, which is actually a recent invention that was developed in New Zealand. This type of DNA testing allows forensic analysts to separate up to four DNA profiles from one sample. So think back to the case you covered on Sunday, Elise. They were able to tell whose blood samples belong to who on the evidence. Um, even if it was just a mixture of Justin and the victims, that's STR mixing. Okay, so to break it down into like simplified mm -hmm. words, you can have multiple strains of blood, skin, hair, nails, whatever genetic material it is from all sorts of people up to four. Yes. And they can somehow, with this new technology, separate it and, and have complete genetic profiles for up to four people. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Because I think sense. a lot of crime scenes are, you know, they can be kind of messy and, you know, you never know whose blood is who. So this, this allows law enforcement to really exactly like separate those samples and make it really clear for the database. Well, if God forbid something happened in my house, you'd have to separate, you know, my hair from the dog's hair. So I guess yeah. that's important. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one I'm going to talk about today is genealogy. So think 23andMe, Ancestry.com, MyHeritage. A person willingly gives a sample in hopes of mapping out a family tree, and then your DNA is collected and stored in a database. This is the one that, that blows my mind. Especially with all the recent news about these, you know, cases from the 80s, which I'm going to cover, and how they've been solved from things like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. So I did learn a little bit while writing this episode in terms of how exactly this process works. What happens is an investigative genealogist has an unknown piece of DNA. They run that piece through the database, and sometimes they get a hit. 
The example I saw said that in most cases, a cousin in the third cousin range will come back. So like a relative of a relative of a relative. What they then do is they start building out a family tree and they use things like obituaries, wedding certificates, birth certificates, and more. Law enforcement can then take that tree and focus on a specific person who lived in a specific area at a specific time. This is how they kind of work backwards to determine the suspect and then boom, that cold case is cracked. This is crazy to me. I just, I mean, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but I remember growing up, my neighbor was obsessed with Ancestry.com, but it was back when like you just kind of filled in the blanks and you'd get paperwork, like you said, obituaries and all of that. Mm -hmm. It must be a lot easier now when you can send in a DNA sample and have, you know, some of the work done for you. But man, it looked like a crime scene investigation. She had a whole wall of, you know, just news clippings and stuff that she had found online. So it's crazy that police are now doing something that my neighbor was doing as a hobby for, I don't know, coffee conversation to solve cold cases. I love it. I picture her wall with like the thumbtacks and all the string just like <laughs> connecting her family members. <laughs> you are not far off. <laughs> but what's really interesting about this are the privacy laws around these genetic testing companies. I pulled a lot of information from this New York Times article, which was super interesting. They talked to someone named Dr. James Hazel. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Genetic Privacy and Identity in Community Settings. He said that there are very few protections for your data when it comes to consumer DNA testing kits. And if you were talking to a doctor, they have really tough laws to follow. One's called the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, where that sample is really protected. But if you are willingly giving your DNA, it's kind of a free-for-all about who might end up with that. That's a scary thought, to be honest with mm -hmm. you. And the largest DNA testing companies are currently, you know, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and MyHeritage. I pulled up their privacy policies on their website. They all basically had kind of the same conclusion that they don't willingly supply your DNA to law enforcement unless subpoenaed. So that's kind of comforting um, just to know, you know, it. I don't think these companies are like, you have DNA and you have some samples and here you go. They're really like trying to protect you to the best they can. But if you're subpoenaed and they know you have your DNA, All they'll right. probably give it up. That makes sense. So another genetic testing site that I came across is called GED Match. And they are completely different. They actually do provide law enforcement genetic matching with their database, but only if it's for investigations into violent crimes. Those crimes include murder, sexual assault, or to identify human remains. I don't know why I have my like reservations, if you will, about doing these mm -hmm. tests. Because, you know, spoiler alert, this podcast is not going to end in a confession of me doing any of these things. But <laughs> I think that it is a really cool idea that you could identify human remains from God knows how long and, and kind of solve cases in that way where bodies have gone unidentified. It is. It's a big step forward in the scientific community for sure. And my biggest takeaway after doing kind of this research was that you need to read the fine print before you give up your sample. These companies all have pages and pages of what they can or can't do with your data. And it's really important to stay informed around that. Read the fine print. So let's get in some cases that are my personal, the, the ones that I personally think are the biggest cases to be solved by this DNA genealogy testing. I bet I can guess the first one. Let's hear it. It was in the news not so long ago. Mr. Golden State Killer himself, who looks like everybody's uh, grandpa next door. Truly. That actually is my first one. So first up, we have the Golden State Killer. The Golden State Killer, also known as the Visalia Ransacker, East Bay Killer, 
the East Area Rapist, or the original Night Stalker, because we both know that others would follow in the footsteps of stalking a night and being creepy, terrorized parts of California in the 70s and 80s. This man committed 13 murders, dozens of sexual assaults, and over 120 burglaries during his reign of terror. All of these horrible crimes went unsolved and unanswered for for nearly 40 years until a Sacramento County Sheriff's deputy arrested a man named Joseph James D'Angelo, who was an ex-cop and a Vietnam War vet. He also, like you said, was a grandpa. At this point, Joseph was living a very average life out in the suburbs. I read an article that said he had a great lawn and a bad temper, and it made me laugh. I mean, that sums up most neighbors, I would say. The identification of Joseph had actually started four months prior to his arrest. Investigators on the case uploaded the Golden State Killer's DNA profile, pulled from a sexual assault kit, and ran it against the personal genomics website called GED Match, which I talked about earlier. After this run, the website identified 10 to 20 people who had the same great-great-great-grandparents as the Golden State Killer. They then worked on a family tree and established only two suspects. One was quickly ruled out by a relative's DNA, leaving Mr. Joseph D'Angelo as the main suspect. Can you imagine being the team of, of investigators who uncovered this man's identity? I would retire right there. I'd be like, I'm done. You're welcome. Goodbye. Right. Get me my cake. I did it. These cases are so wild. And I think what's wild to me is he was just chilling. He was. I mean, he was a serial killer. I absolutely, I mean, you said it best. Like he terrorized mm -hmm. an entire area, really, truly the entire nation. This was all over the media. Everyone was scared to death of this guy. And he is just out there mowing his lawn and being pissed off at the world, but otherwise not causing problems. Exactly. He got to live a very normal life. And it's frustrating, I think, for everyone. So they have his DNA. They know it's him. However, they still need to do a couple of last things just to make sure that they're correct. So they collect DNA from the door handle of Joseph's car, and they collect it also from a tissue found in a trash can outside of his home. Both of these samples confirmed their guesses and matched the DNA samples associated with Golden State Killer crimes. Joseph was 74 years old when he pled guilty to each of the 13 counts of first-degree murder and kidnapping. That number seems really low, but it was because of that dang statute of limitations. In most um, states, there is a statute of limitations, especially around sexual assault, which I hope changes. But I do not believe in the case of murder, there is no statute of limitations. So they might not have been able to get him for all of his crimes from the robbery and sexual assault, but they could try him for murder. All right. So next up is a case that I watched, which is kind of how my weekends are now spent. I say I'm just doing research, but I will stay on the couch for like 12 hours and binge the absolute shit on any new documentary that's released. And text me all about it. <laughs> Sometimes even FaceTime you like, did you see this? <laughs> um, but this, case, this case took place in my good old home state, Indiana. The documentary that caught my attention was aired on Netflix and it's called Our Father. Elise, have you heard of it? Okay, I heard of it because you texted me about it. <laughs> I'll be honest, I, I think it was after work, so I got home at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I think I got through the trailer, and I know this case somewhat, but I haven't watched the documentary. I'll give you some clip notes on it. So it's about an Indianapolis fertility doctor that used his own sperm to impregnate women during the 70s and 80s. Now, the messed up and horrific part is that the women had no idea the doctor was using his own sperm. Of course, women who visited the clinic either desired to use donor sperm or their husband's sperm to become pregnant. They never consented for the doctor's sperm to be used. 
So gross. So gross. Jacoba Ballard had known from a young age that she was donor conceived. And in her 30s, when she sent a sample of her DNA to 23andMe, she had hopes of finding some siblings. What she got was actually the surprise of a lifetime when seven half siblings popped up. Now, seven's an odd number because the clinic boasted that they never used a donor sperm more than three times. So this automatically was a red flag. Liar, for her. liar, pants on fire. This woman fought for justice, and that's really what the documentary goes over, is just her fight trying to make people believe her and realize how big of an issue it was. I admire her so much. She did not back down. She did not give up. And eventually, Dr. Klein was taken to court over the misconduct. During his hearing, Dr. Klein estimated that he used his own sperm for insemination up to 50 times. However, our little investigator Jacoba said that she had uncovered more than 90 siblings. Okay, pause, pause, pause. 90? 90. Siblings. Nine zero. You can't fit mm-hmm. all your siblings around a Thanksgiving table when you have 90 <laughs> of them. And what is this doctor doing? That's 90 samples he had to provide at minimum because I'm sure that there was times where, you know, they had to do it more than once. Let's put it that way. What is this Mm -hmm. man up to? I think it's because this clinic talked about how high of a success rate they had. It was incredible on the documentary. Everyone who went there was like, I was pregnant a month later. He didn't want to, you know, selfishly, he didn't want to mess up his rating. I really encourage everyone to watch this documentary. It's really, really amazing. It's horrible, but it was well done by Netflix. So she takes Dr. Klein to trial and it was held in 2017. He was charged with obstructing the state attorney general's investigation. He received no jail time. Instead, a judge suspended his sentence and made him pay $500 fine plus $185 worth of court costs, which is a slap on the wrist, in my opinion. That is a fraction of what these women probably paid for fertility treatments from him. They were paying thousands, I mean, that's thousands and thousands of dollars. And he basically got away with, I mean, the price of a four-star meal. But that is, that's ridiculous. Did they ever go after him in like a civil suit? They did. So he did end up paying $1.3 million in civil lawsuits to the families affected by this. Still not enough, in my opinion. Next up, we have the BTK killer. Dennis Lynn Rader killed 10 people in Wichita and Park City, Kansas, between 1974 and 1991. He got the nickname BTK because he would bind, torture, and kill his victims. He even went so far as to send taunting letters to police and newspapers describing the details of his crime. Now, I will say DNA was kind of the icing on the cake for this arrest. Police had actually suspected Dennis Rader when a floppy disk metadata was tied back to a local Lutheran church where he volunteered. But that was just not enough evidence to convict him. They really needed DNA. Just remind our audience how the police got a hold of this floppy disk again. He willingly sent it to them. Of course he did, because they are all egomaniacs and think they can get away with everything. He is such a narcissist. Like, he would brag about the crimes. He wanted them to be posted in newspapers. A, a true a true psycho. I mean, there's that's not me being mean. That's just saying what he is. Okay, so let's talk about Dennis real quick and give some background on his char- characteristics. When we picture the people who could be capable of committing such awful crimes, it's often not accurate to who they actually are. For instance, Dennis was described as a loving family man. He was the president of his church, a Boy Scout troop leader, and an Air Force veteran. He also was a home security installer. Um, no. BRB as I rip out every single security camera I have off my walls. 
I do not want BTK coming to my house to literally install cameras. That is, that's a terrifying thought. It is. At the time of his arrest, he was nearly 60 years old and by that point, balding and wore glasses. The New York Times described his life as intensely ordinary. And honestly, that is my mood for the rest of 2022, just there. I mean, these, these papers between the like good lawn but grumpy and intensely ordinary, whoever these journalists are that are writing this are the king and queen of getting backhanded compliments to horrible people. A lot of low jabs, yeah. So DNA comes into play when law enforcement find out that Dennis's daughter, whose name's Carrie Rawson, had an annual pap smear and they got a warrant for her medical records. They get her DNA, they match it to the BTK killer's DNA, and it landed on Dennis. Okay, wait. I'm trying to process this because that is a pretty private medical mm-hmm. record that they are getting. So how did she feel? Because she wasn't, you know, this wasn't asked of her. This went to the doctor Yep. to get a copy of her pap smear sample. Yep. She was upset that police were behind her back because she felt like it was a complete invasion of privacy. And I read an interview in People magazine where she did go on to say that she would have willingly given her DNA to the police if they asked. Um, She also said that, you know, the police were doing their jobs and they were heroes. They were trying to save the community in Wichita and prevent him from committing any more murders. She said, I'm not forgiving him for what he did to those families, but I am forgiving him for what he did to our family. That's pretty big of her. I don't I don't know how I feel about the. I mean, it's great that he's, you know, obviously that we finally figured out who it was. That is an odd way to get there. All right, so next up, we have a 57-year-old cold case that involved 9-year-old Maurice Ann Shiverella. On March 18, 1964, Maurice was on her way to school with a bag of canned goods that she was planning on giving her teacher, but at some point on her walk, she was kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered. Her body was discovered by a man giving his nephew driving lessons, and initially the two men thought it was a large doll in a coal mining pit it is never a large doll or a mannequin. Never. No, and sadly, they soon realized it was a little girl and they immediately called the police. So police put in months of nonstop work but were not able to retrieve any leads following the murder. But then, in 2018, so not that long ago, not at all, authorities teamed up with Arabon Nano Labs, which is a DNA technology and genealogy company, and also a badass 18-year-old college student who was attending Elizabethtown College. His name was Eric Schubert. He was attending the college to study genetics and become a genealogist, and his professor said that he had a special gift for genealogy. So he volunteered specifically to help on this case. Good job, Eric. We love Eric. The team was able to compare semen found on Reese's clothing to a public genealogy database. They ran a ton of tests, and a distant cousin of the perpetrator was identified. A few months ago, actually, in February of 2022, authorities announced that with assistance from badass Eric and the Paranon Nanolabs team, the culprit was a man named James Paul Forte. James was 22 years old when he committed this awful crime, and he lived only six or seven blocks from her family. A quote by lead investigator Corporal Mark Barron stood out to me. He said, This should instill in the families of victims across the state and across the country a sense of hope that no matter how long it may take, we, as law enforcement, will never give up in trying to find the perpetrators of these heinous crimes. So, God willing, in life or death, you will be found. And I have goosebumps now. 
Ooh, Mr. Mark Barron. That is an incredible statement. And if you think about what you said earlier, with it only really like DNA testing, 1986 is the first time it got used. So in a very short amount of time, all these other types of DNA tests are coming out. Like who knows what the next 20 years is going to hold and like how tiny of a speck of DNA they could use to solve crimes that were never able to be solved before. Agree. Well, we'll have to come back to this episode in 20 years and be like, oh, Unleash, remember how we were talking about that DNA? Hopefully I'm not that old in 20 years, but you get it. I'll get my readers and my cane ready. <laughs> okay, so now we have one more case. And as you know, Elise, I am very biased toward Colorado. So this is a 1980 case that turned out to be Colorado's very first cold case solved by genetic genealogy. And it's actually a case that I had never heard of. This is the 1980 murder of Helen Prusinski. She was 21 years old when she was believed to be abducted while walking home from a bus stop. They later found her body and discovered she had been sadly sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. After a year of investigating, the case went cold because they had nothing to go off of. Now, I will say the suspect left behind semen on Helen's body and clothing, which did open up the possibility of someday identifying this man through his DNA. I think back in the 80s, it was kind of an idea, you know, a dream. And it's so exciting to see this come to fruition. In 1998, so almost 18 years after her murder, the case was reopened and detectives developed a DNA profile for the suspect. They compared it to a nationwide database of known offenders, but unfortunately, there were no matches and the case once again went cold. With the help of two private companies, investigators were able to narrow their search to a man named James Curtis Clayton and his brother. James's brother was ruled out as a suspect because his DNA didn't match what was left behind at the scene of the crime. Investigators obtained a beer mug from a bar that James had drank from, and they were able to match it to the DNA from the victim's body, and investigators were able to crack the case. James was 61 years old when he pled guilty to a charge of first-degree murder and the death of Helen Prusinski. You know, all these cases that, I mean, it's incredible. I can't say enough how incredible it is that the families of these victims are getting some semblance of justice or at the very least an answer to who did this to their to their son to their daughter all of these just horrible crimes but i can't help but think and this is maybe just the little sensitive soul in me for those that like we were talking about the golden state killer practically living 40 years doing nothing but mowing his lawn and having a whole family that don't know him as this that while I absolutely think these people need to get brought to justice, how hard it must be for the family to try to sit there and go, wait, grandpa was connected by this piece of, you know, hair or whatever the DNA was to this years ago crime. My, my, my little fragile emotional brain just goes to how life ruining potentially that could be for the family because they're victims, too. Absolutely. They suffer a ton, especially with the Golden State Killer and BTK. I mean, his daughter was like, no, he is not this monster. He's a loving man. She ended up coming to terms. Well, yeah, that's her daddy. You protect your family members. So I think it's normal to have that reaction. No, this could not be them. Obviously, it's a great thing for the victims and their families. But it is also, I just, my heart goes out to his other victims, which is his family and loved ones, that he is basically lied to and manipulated into believing he was someone that he clearly wasn't for all of these years. It's just, it blows my mind how people can live two totally different lives. Like I can't, I can't keep track of my own life, much less have like a whole alter ego to keep track of. 
Well, that kind of gets into what you love about this kind of category and what goes on in someone's brain and just like how insane the human brain is and how these people can really live two different lives and have no remorse. It's crazy. Absolutely wild. Well, I am so excited. Thank you for taking the time to do a little mini sewn and give me a break. But you're not done taking over the mic just yet, Annie, because this Sunday, Annie is going to be sharing one thing of the true crime genre that she loves, which is bringing light to cold cases. So hopefully we get the word out there. And let's just say you've given me a couple of hints, and I I think we're about to go on a wild ride with this case. We are. That's the warning I'm giving everyone. It is a wild ride. Well, you guys, as always, thanks for listening. We hope you have a great weekend. Catch us on Sunday, where Annie's going to be taking us on a roller coaster of a case. As always, please listen, download, subscribe, share, tell your grandma, tell your third or fourth cousin that you find through Ancestry.com. Tell anybody you can. We appreciate your support. We'll see you Sunday. Bye.